Hey, we love Burger King grilled dogs. They're made with 100% beef, and they're 100%. Mm. They're so good, they make us want to sing like... I can't believe it. Burger King made a grilled dog. Made with 100% beef. Flame grilled anytime you want. This July 4th weekend, put down the tongs, step away from the grill, and get to Burger King to try a grilled dog for just a dollar. Ask for the dollar grilled dog deal and get a classic grilled dog for a dollar. Only at Burger King. At participating restaurants on July 2nd and 3rd, limit five per transaction while supplies last. Welcome to Real Jam Radio. I'm Daniel Rue, your host, and so happy to have you with us for this episode. This is the NBA Draft Preview episode. It was recorded and cut on Wednesday before the draft. It's going out on Wednesday, but most of you will probably hear it on Thursday. I wanted to have on guests to tackle kind of two different parts of the NBA Draft process. First up is Jonathan Charks of Real GM, and second is also Real GM guest Andrew Perna. Jonathan and I have a draft preview, and then Andrew and I talk about one of the under-discussed parts of the draft process, which is media day, which is the Wednesday before the draft. It's a lot of fun. I I did it myself in 2012 with the Anthony Davis class, and it was an an experience, I'll put it that way. But first up is Jonathan Charks. We talk for about half an hour, go through all the top guys. He has a very interesting opinion on Andrew Wiggins. He has him seventh. I have him fourth, and we go through why that is. And a lot of the other top guys, Wiggins, Embiid, Dante Exum, all those. And then we get into Fitz, and we get into some of the more divisive prospects that are a little bit later, which are the UCLA guys, Adams, Levine, and Kyle Anderson. And then we get into his sleepers, the guys that he thinks are underappreciated, but also are going to go lower in the draft than they should. And I think that's a good part of the process. So it goes, as I said, it goes about 30 minutes. Hope you enjoy it. Thanks so much for coming on. Hey man, how you doing? Doing well, excited. I mean, we're now just, just so close to the draft and what has been notable for me is the, just the total amount of upheaval. And it looks to me, your board came out and obviously you've been doing really good draft content all along. And one thing that I noticed in your board that is Andrew Wiggins a little bit lower than most people think, and I was hoping we could walk through where that comes from. Yeah, sure thing. I guess with me for Wiggins, like obviously the athletic ability is incredible. I guess just for me, I just about his overall skill level, and particularly with me, it's his passing ability. Because I just a perimeter player doesn't pass the ball very well. I just feel like it's very it, it's somewhat sort of replaceable. The things he, even a good defender. It's just like, because Wiggins is so far behind us on ball handling, shooting, and getting to the basket that seeing the floor, reading a defense, that's like a second order kind of thing. So that, that, that's years away if it ever even happens. And for me, a perimeter player takes a lot of shots, doesn't have a lot of assists, is only so valuable because there's so many guys that take shots in the perimeter. The way that I've been thinking about it, I've moved him down actually from second to fourth. What did it for me is that I still think his defensive ceiling is really high, but I think there are two different factors that you touched on there. One is I think that he's worse offensively right now than people think, which means that you're getting 
a lower return in the next, let's say, two, three years. But also, as you said, his passing is a little bit there. His handle is fine, but it's not great. So I, I think he might be more of like a secondary or even third scorer on a team. And while that's nice and, you know, he that he has the potential to be more than that, a guy who is a, let's say he's a mm-hmm. top 10 but not top 5 defender and is a that kind of level of offensive player, he's a good player, but he's not the type of guy that you have to take if they're available. Yeah, I mean, I just think so much of his kind of the excitement about him just stems back from what happened two, three, four years ago when he was getting built up in the, through the AAU ranks and the high school ranks. And that, that stuff for me, I'm just so burnt out on that stuff. I really, for me with these, with these college players, I look at their year in college, but I watch from them there, and that's really all I take away from it. Because you look at all these guys the last three or four years, I remember Shabazz, Harrison Barnes, Austin Rivers, if for whatever reason, it's just very, very hard to properly evaluate guys when they're 16, 17 in high school. And that kind of like the shadow of that evaluation is still really on these guys when they're in college. I think it's really, I'm not sure there's any real value at all, to be honest, at this point. And it gets into a, a larger issue that I feel has become more prevalent, I think, maybe as training and all of that has changed, is that there's a big fundamental difference between a player being athletic and a player using that athleticism. And I think that, and it's been talked, I think David Locke did a really good job talking about touch with Wiggins, and that there's more to being a successful basketball player than being a really good athlete. And I think that what Wiggins hasn't shown yet is that he can make that transition. So obviously a high-level athlete is more likely to be successful because you can't teach that. But it's a dangerous thing. And I think what's the other thing that's interesting about that is that one of those first real freak guys on the wing that came in was LeBron. And I think that might have shaded people's expectations because LeBron was such a savant of the game and such a talent that people went, oh, you know, he's a freak. It worked out. Maybe it'll work out for other guys. Well, I mean, yeah, LeBron obviously is his own kind of universe of player category kind of thing. It's hard really to have any kind of takeaways from that guy versus anyone else, really. I can can never ever sing. And, yeah, I mean, because, like, in the NBA, they're all athletic at the end of the day. Like, Gerald Green is an elite, elite athlete. And he's become a good player after, like, 10 years. I'm not saying winning is Gerald Green or anything, but in and of itself, that doesn't necessarily mean anything. For I mean, not, not anything, but, yeah, the level of interest in the athletic ability in the NBA is so small for even the best athletes. Everyone's a really good athlete, obviously. So, as it turned out, you and I ended up with the top two, same top two guys that we had him in a different order, it's interesting because I'm guessing we went through a very similar thought process and you have Joel Embiid number one, despite, you know, obviously we don't know everything, but what we know is the logic on that, that he still has the highest ceiling in the class. Yeah, I guess it's probably for me is I'm just not a doctor. So I really can't honestly say like, okay, well this means that in terms of his long-term potential. So I look at him just as well as seeing on the basketball court with Embiid. I think he's the best player. Cause I'm all, I'm still a believer in the big man. I still kind of value the true center, especially I can play both ends of the ball. And so, like, when I see a center who can be a 20-point scorer and a defensive player of the year candidate, he's going to be number one in pretty much any draft for me. So I'll always go with the big man. But, of course, like, you know, I'm not a doctor. It's just hard to say with him anymore because, you know, a back and a foot is the two biggest red flags to have. Yeah, they, they really are, especially for his size. But – I think that it's been lost in the shuffle that he was so good when he played. And so really the question, the question isn't how good is he going to be when he's on the court? It's only how much is he going to be on the court? And 
I, whether you said, I, well, as not being a doctor, I think that if a guy's entire job, basically, and, and a whole a whole medical staff's entire job is keeping a guy on the court, I think they can do it. And, may, you know, I think it definitely lowers him, not necessarily within a draft board, but that doesn't, that doesn't mean that he's going to be a worse player. It's a, it's, a, it's a very tough balancing act. Yeah, I guess for me, it's sort of all these guys are someone of a risk. But I'll take the risk with the guy I think is going to be a great player and just hope, you know, play to the basketball gods or whoever you want to play to that his health works out. Because to me, like, if I'm going to go down with the ship, I'm going down with the guy I think is the best player. And then let's just see what happens. The guy that you have at number two and I have at number one, Dante Exum, is another type of risk, which is the risk of uncertainty. He's going to be a really interesting player, but I was wondering what stood out to you and in, in what you use as analysis to make him your second best player. Well, I mean, for me, it's just Dante Exum has got this, it's a size, speed, and feel for the game. The things he was doing in the hoop summit a little bit and more at the U19s, that was the stuff I don't see Wiggins doing. Like, Exum was running point. He was getting other guys' shots. He was affecting the game in a lot of different ways. And it seemed like he had a much higher kind of basketball IQ and feel for the game than Wiggins. And he's not quite the athlete, but he's a pretty phenomenal athlete himself. He's so big. He's so fast. And I, I, like, I like to go with guys like that. I feel like that, those kind of three things, size, speed, and feel for the game. My question with him is his jumper because you only got to see so few. That's the one part I'm not too comfortable with, projecting off small samples. Because obviously, you know, the jumper in, is in or out. And the form, even like there's some guys who can't, you, you can't believe they make shots to do anyways. So to, to me, that's the question with Exum is how, how good is his jumper? Because if his jumper isn't great, he'll have the ball in his hands a lot, which affects how he'll other teams. It's been weird with Exum. It's the first time that I can remember that I've had to watch high school games in a country that wasn't, that wasn't the U.S. You know, you can watch games with high school guys, but to straight up watch high school games. I watched his high school championship game. And what I really liked about Exum was, despite him clearly being the best player on his team, he was still driving the lane and looking for passes. He wasn't driving the lane and saying, I'm going to score this. And I think that when a guy wants to be a point guard and wants to run an offense, more importantly, that is a pivotal part of the mentality, especially when he's making such a gigantic jump in terms of the quality of his teammates. Yeah, for sure. That, I love how you said it, drive the lane, look in the pass. That was, I remember when I was watching Jonas last year, it was the same kind of thing, where he was playing complete nobodies. And it was just his ability to see the floor and make the extra play. That was what convinced me that he's going to be able to make it to the next level. And that's what Wiggins went back to him as a thing. When Wiggins had the ball at Kansas, it was straight drive the ball, look to score, look to draw a foul. It was almost never drive the ball, read the defense, manipulate the defense, hit the open man, make the extra pass. That I'm not sure how it really is. Because in the NBA, you still get too many reps being the guy seeing the whole floor. You get maybe like five or six a game and start off your career. Whereas like, you know, when you're younger, you can play the ball in your hands for 40 minutes and you develop that feel for passing the ball. Like, I'm just a big fan of guys who pass. That to me is the most unrighteous thing in these draft is passing ability. We certainly saw that in the two teams that made the NBA finals. I mean, I would say that they were the two best passing teams in the league. And when you have elite athletes who can pass whatever position they play, I think that's a whole different level. And the other thing, I, I think that was a really good point, the comparison that you brought up with Wiggins, and it was something that I, I thought about mentioning and should have, is that 
if you want to think about it as like kind of an idea of a priority listing when you're going into the lane, you know, what some of the things you can do is, you know, you can drive on a guy, you can look to pass, you can do that. What seemed like to me with Wiggins was that there would be times that he would just take certain things off that should have been on, you know, like, oh, there's a big guy there, I'll go around him, as opposed to, there's a big guy there, I can finish over him instead of around him. And those kind of decisions worry me because there are going to be more guys in the way who are good at doing it. And so you want to have a guy who has faith that they can do that. And as critical as I am at points about Paul George, one good thing about Paul George is that he doesn't have that hesitation because Wiggins has the athletic talent to do it. It's not like there are certain guys who should have that hesitation because they're not good enough. But I think Wiggins is good enough but still has it. Yeah, it's just like at a certain level, you want to make the game as easy as possible. Like basketball doesn't have to be too complicated. Like you see the – if you've got two guys on you, you move the ball. You have one guy on you, take it to the lane. Bring that at a really simple level. And with George, at least he had – he said next year in college, he had three assists. And I think that was huge for his development because at his college team, he had the ball in his hands the whole game. There was no, like, pressure on him to, like, get someone else 15 shots. I mean, they, they didn't win a lot of games, but he had so many reps of being the guy on the floor – seeing the defense, reading how the second unit relaxed to a defense, and all this kind of stuff Wiggins is going to miss out on the NBA. Because wherever he goes next year, he'll be one of three or four options in the offense. And he might get 10 or 11 shots. And a lot of those shots will come, out, come on someone else passing him the ball and getting him a shot. So it's just going to be hard for him to develop that kind of feel for when to pass and when to shoot. And I think that's just so important for a primary option, which is what you want to draft a perimeter player in the top three or four picks. What's weird about Wiggins as a top prospect is that I feel that it puts him in a situation where he's not going to get his optimal role. And you see that all the time. You know, the best the best prospects going to the worst teams leads that. Like To me, if you could pair him with a high-level scorer, then you get him to kind of, in a way, take on the role that, that Clay Thompson has offensively with the Warriors. Obviously, Wiggins isn't the shooter, but the idea is you're getting easier opportunities. And so he would be a good guy at getting easier opportunities. The problem is, it, unless he goes to the Cavs and Kyrie Irving becomes something better than he is right now, he's not going to get that opportunity. And there are certain guys, I think Wiggins might be the best example of this, maybe in the last four to five years, of somebody who would be so much better on a great team than on, a, on an average or worse team. Yeah, I mean, you look at Paul George's development, like well, how he maxed out as a player. That was just perfect. He came in, I think he was a bench player his first year a spot starter his second year, a third option his third year, the primary option his fourth year, and the team got better around him. There wasn't too much pressure on him to beat him guy right away. And that was like the perfect role for George. And I don't think Wiggins is going to have that, unfortunately, wherever he ends up going. Are you as high on the possibility, because I know you like him almost as much as I do, of a Giannis-Jabari Parker front court as I am? I don't love Jabari, but I think that makes a strangely large amount of sense. Yeah, I think, I mean, I think that's a great fit because they, you know, because Giannis can defend multiple positions and a little bit hence the Sanders too. So you go somewhere you can hide Jabari on defense and let him kind of do his thing on offense and stretch the floor a bit. I think Milwaukee makes a lot of sense for Jabari. The question I have for him is whether, with them, I guess, with Henson and Sanders and how they figure that out. Because as it is now, there's not too much shooting in the front court for them. I'm wondering whether Henson would be a small ball five in the East and just move Sanders for more perimeter shooting. I don't think you want to start Henson at the five, but I do think that he can play some minutes there. I think that the the other thing that you worry about then is just 
having I, I think you have too many guys that opponents would feel comfortable cheating off of. I lo- I like Henson a lot, but I think that what the Bucks have that's really interesting if they drafted Javari is I think they have a, a core of a three four five overall rotation because what people think about a lot they think about the starting lineup and they think about okay you know these guys. But most starters only play, you know, 30, 35 or less minutes a game. So that means you have a bare minimum 13 minutes a game for other guys. So the Bucks would have enough minutes for Henson to dabble a little bit in both positions and kind of help Jabari in some different ways. And I feel like with those four guys, and maybe you add in another another guy who's a specialist probably is a shooter at the three to play 10 to 15 minutes a game, you have a good 48 minutes from all three spots, which would be really nice for them. And I guess the question I have with the Bucks is whether they still need another passer, whether they believe Knight is going to be the point guard for them. But I suppose there are other ways to find a point guard at the top of the draft. Oh, I agree. I think that what you do with those three spots is you, you basically have to throw away everything at the one and two spots. I don't really love any guys. And the other thing that's sad about that is I really like Ersan Ilyasova. I feel like he was terrible last year. But you can do better than him. And I think that Jabari offensively is going to be such a good player and also create opportunities for other guys and also give them give their offense an identity while they look for their point guard. Yeah, Jabari's a guy I feel like should be a better passer than what he was at Duke. And I know that was his role at Duke was to score the ball. But he's kind of got, like, in terms of, in terms of Wiggins, Jabari's got a much better feel for the game, kind of overall, like, presence on the court. He should be able to pass better. And with him, I, I like putting him on a lot of athletes up front so you can hide him on defense as much as possible. But I'll be the key for him at least early in his career is, Go somewhere where he can guard the worst player on the, the three four. Hide him, have a guy behind him can block shots because his defense is just not. It's not. It's not where it needs to be. That's for sure. It definitely isn't. And the other thing that changed my view of Jabari a lot. I mean, I was down on him all year as an elite guy. Obviously, he's still a very good talent. Is I've been over the last couple of weeks. I've been arguing really heavily for the Warriors to acquire Kevin Love. And what I've been thinking about is, obviously, Jabari, at least early on, is not going to be the offensive player Kevin Love is. Kevin Love is really underrated as a player. But I think power forward might be the easiest position in the league right now to hide a legitimately bad defender. And I feel like if you have Jabari at the three, or at least as a pure three primarily, so he's guarding those, I think it's a lot harder to hide him. But if you have him at the four, you're going to have a rim protector anyway. If your team doesn't have a rim protector, you're probably going to be bad on defense. So... It makes thinking about Jabari as a power forward to me dramatically increases his value because teams already know how to game plan for that flaw. Yeah, I mean, to me, with all these combo forwards, like the rule of thumb is if there's a guy you don't know is a four or three, he's probably a four. That's how it's kind because of, you always want that's how it's kind of been. Like, I'm a fan of that kind of line of thinking. So we'll, we'll move west, and another guy that, that you're high on and that I think a lot of people are, and I, I understand it, it's a really complicated guy, is Aaron Gordon. He is a very unusual combination of skills, especially for a guy his age. Yeah, I mean, with him, I think it's really it's just the jump shot. Because even at Arizona by the end of the season, he was going to play it off that. It's whether he can go somewhere where his jumper isn't going to kill your team. Because, I mean, yeah, he can, really do every, he can really do everything else. It's just, yeah, which is rare for a guy his size. Like, Alex always say, he's the one guy you could, he could run the pick and roll as a ball handler, or he could be the screener and catch and finish, too. You just barely see guys. I mean, you, you don't see guys from don't like Aaron Gordon who can pass like him, too, very often. He, and, and he seems like a smart player on the floor. So some people have talked about the idea of, you know, a guy who can't shoot can learn how to do a lot of other things well, and I think that's a good point. But 
what I like about Aaron is that I feel like he will be a useful part of an offense, even if he can't score. The question is going to be, will he give the opposing defense uh, such a large ability to cheat that it will negate the positives that he brings on that end? Yeah, I mean, that's where, like, his ability to move out the ball is so important. And my rule is with, like, guys who can't shoot, it's like you can afford to have one guy who can't shoot in your two, three, four point guard area. It's a matter of, like, if he's not going to shoot, what else is he going to do? Because it means the guys around him have to be able to shoot. And I, I like Gordon up as an all-around player and as a defensive player, but I think he's worth that one slot in your rotation. Okay, this guy's not a shooter. I'll, get, I'll put guys around him who can. Because, yeah, the problem with Gordon is you put a guy with, like, you put him with guys like who can't shoot also, so you have two or three guys who can't shoot. Then it's a real problem, like the magnifying effect of lack of spacing. And that's exactly why I'm terrified of him going to Boston, because Boston has a point guard right now in Rajon Rondo who can't shoot. Granted, we don't know how long he'll be there, but it looks like they, they're at least open to committing to Avery Bradley, who is another perimeter player who can't shoot. I, I worry about that, but I think that what Gordon needs more than anything else, and we've talked about this, is he needs a team to understand how to use him well. I think that there's a very real chance that him falling in the draft would be a very good thing for his long-term development because at that point it would be a team that really wants him. But at the same time, you can make the argument that if a team takes him really high, it's because they really like him. So hopefully they appreciate his strengths and weaknesses as well. Well, my thing with Boston is I'm not sure they're need to worry about fit because I don't really love any of the young players in their roster really for a long-term rebuild. So like to me, their team could be three or four years away. So they just have Rondo and Jeff Green now. They're both in their prime. And they're not going to be the best two players on a good team. And all their young guys, to me, have, have holes into one side of the ball or the other. Sullinger, Olenek, Bradley. I don't love any of those guys. I'm not sure any of them are long-term pieces for a rebuilding effort. So, to me, they're starting from ground zero. Like, who they, got, who they get now is this pick, these two picks this year, their picks next year. I'm not, to, me, to me, they're a team in the middle of a complete rebuild. And so the fit isn't too much an issue for them because they're starting over anyways. That's a good point. And Brad Stevens also appears to be a coach tactically that could, with enough time and everything, figure out how to use Gordon. I love the way that his teams play. So that could be, you're right, that if you wanted to kind of consider him as the first piece of the next team, that's a good way of thinking about it. One of the stories of this draft, more on the kind of draft prognostication side, is that three of the most divisive prospects in this entire class all happen to go to the same school, which is UCLA. And they're Zach Levine, Jordan Adams, and Kyle Anderson. How did you suss out kind of that situation and how you thought of each of them as prospects? I mean, I can see, like, your boys. I can see how, like, you can go back and forth on them. To me, I kind of fell in love with that team as the season went on. And, like, I'm, I'm, I'm seeing the upside, of the positives in all three. But I can definitely see the downsides of that, too. Because that's what makes them such interesting players. They all have such distinct, like, pluses and minuses. But I, I really like their overall feel for the game. I like, I like their skill set. I think they're all I'm, – I'm, I'm higher in price all three of them than most people are, I would say. We'll start with Levine, I guess, because Levine is the ultimate eye of the holder guy because he pretty much did nothing all season. I mean, like, not nothing, but his overall body of work for a guy who could be a lottery pick might be the lowest I've ever seen out of one season in college. That's probably fair to say, I would imagine, right? Yeah, he he's definitely in there. I'm trying. Uh, I mean, the other guy, but it's different. Would be Kyrie Irving, just because he didn't play because he got hurt. Yeah, but I mean, even the game Kyrie played 11 games and was like a superstar in 11 games, whereas Zach was the second guy off the bench. I mean, he, I guess was he behind Alfred in the rotation? I guess it was kind of back and forth with that. 
but he was probably their seventh option <laughs> and over the course of the season. Yeah, and the the thing that that's so weird about the UCLA guys is that if you could put Kyle Anderson's mentality and knowledge of basketball in Zach Levine's body, I'm convinced not only would you have the number one player in this draft, but you'd have probably one of the top ten prospects in the last decade. But that's the problem, is that Kyle Anderson ha- doesn't have the physical ability to do everything that he wants to do, and Zach Levine has the physical ability to do everything but doesn't know how to do much yet. Yeah, I guess for me, it, it, it's I, even more with Jordan Adams, because they play the same position. If you had Adams' production in Levine's body, he'd probably be the top. Yeah, he'd be a top three pick, probably. But it's just like, they're like the two sides of the coin. Adams is a guy who's produced at a high level since the day he got to UCLA in every statistical category, even though he can barely dunk, right? Like, I'm not sure i ever seen him dunk the ball before. And Levine's this guy, Levine's like a warm-up guy. You watch them in warm-ups, and you're like, whoa. Like, he just kind of, like, jumps off the page. And then he, he hardly ever plays, so it's hard to really say. Like, for me with Levine, if pretty much if I hadn't seen him play, like, two games out of, like, all the games he had played, if I had missed the night he played Arizona State, and he had 15 points in 10 minutes, and then he had a game with Oregon where, they, where uh, Adams and Anderson were suspended, and he had to play 30, 35 minutes to hold the ball a lot. Without those two games, I probably wouldn't be high on Levine at all because the rest of the season he didn't do very much. He hadn't been able to do anything. But with Adams, it's kind of the consistent success. And you just have to wonder how it will go up against guys who are just much better athletes than he will be at the next level. Exactly. And the challenge with Adams is, is the increase in competition. I think that he's a good basketball player, but playing against good players every night and playing with good players every night be enough to make him still a useful player and it's incredible because this is school stuff on him is so incredibly high it's not oh he's a top 20 guy it's he might be a top five guy and as somebody who is an alum of the school and who watched a lot of Jordan Adams you watch that and you go well I guess I understand why they like him so much his block rate's high his steal rate's high he's a good rebounder for a guard too but I don't know it's he's so hard to figure out even having seen so much of him play yeah, he's got a very, like, old man game to him, which is, it's really fun to watch that, but if he's old man game against college, against guys who are, you know, average athletes on the NBA level, how is he going to hold up? I think for me, what, what ends up saving him for me is just his arms. Like, I feel like at the end of the day, like, that's one of the main, a guy with long arms is going to really push himself forward. Like, if all things being equal, he's got a 6'10 wingspan, he's got a pretty big frame. So even though he's, like, really, he's not fast and he's not up and down, those extra inches let him play off and extra put on a guy on defense. They give him the extra edge over and show over top of a guy. Let him poke away some steals, grab a few rebounds. And I did a thing on that with the Thunder uh, during the playoffs and how pretty much every guy they draft has got supersized arms. Reggie Jackson, 6'11 wingspan. Jeremy Lamb's got 7-foot wingspan. All these guys they find later in the draft, the big common denominator is these long arms. And I'm, I've always been a fan of a guy because I want you to play bigger than you actually are. Even though Adams is only 6'5", he's got the reach of a 6'10 player, which is pretty big on the perimeter for a guy as skilled as he is. Yeah, it definitely is. The other aspect that I think helps Jordan Adams a lot is that I feel like coaches will really like him because he plays hard, he's a smart player. And also, I think that early in his career, he presumably won't be starting, so he'll be playing more against backups. And I feel like that will be closer to what he did in college. So if a coach could basically see that he could do that and figure out how to use him and then Maybe he stays in the super sub role. Maybe he becomes more of a fringe starter. But 
that progression might work really well for him as a smart guy who works hard. Yeah, I mean, I, I saw someone uh, tweet about that. They were saying, like, Adams to a contender in the late first round could be one of the more instant impact picks in this draft. And, yeah, I think as a seventh, eighth man, he can really do a lot of different things off the bench, and he can help a team. He's a guy, if you're a guy looking to win, now he can help you right away just on offense at 15, 20 minutes a night. Yeah, he, he definitely could. And we'll go on to one of the things that I always like talking about with people are outside of the outside of the really the top group, are there any players that you think will are let's just say underrated in terms of that you think will have a good impact in the league? I think I'll I'll put out for a guy I've I've been a fan of since he came into NC State and that's T J Warren. Like T J Warren to me, if he had played at Duke or UNC, he'd be seen as a lottery pick for sure. Like, his scoring averages are just insane. You, I mean, you never see a guy. He came in as a freshman. He was a fifth option on a team with a bunch of older players that didn't pass the ball. He had, like, 12 points on, like, 60% shooting. Then as a sophomore, he's the only player on the, on, on the team left. And he puts up, like, 25 points on 53% shooting. Like, he just scored the ball as he did everything that scored ball in the college level in a long time. And we've talked about one of the storylines with this draft is a lot of unusual players T.J. Warren is an unusual player in a draft of unusual players because he scores at such a ridiculous rate without having a particularly reliable jump shot and without shooting a lot of jump shots. In, in that way, his floater game is incredible and all of that. So he has succeeded in a way that is very different, even for a guy his size. Yeah, to me, he's the only guy I've ever compared to Antoine Jameson. Like, that's why I've always been a big Jameson guy. I remember he had one year in Dallas where he was a sixth man on a team. And the team was like Dirk, Finley, Nash, Antoine Walker. So he pretty much never got the ball. And Damon had like 15 points and like 48% shooting. And what he did was like when he got in the game, he was going to score the ball as soon as he got the ball basically from anywhere on the floor. Because he had that little two-foot floater. And that shot is just so deadly for a big man to have. And you know, it's kind of like the Tony Parker shot in the 6'9 body. So you can get that shot off whenever you want if you had to touch on it. So like anywhere in the 15 feet of the basket, Warren can score in like half a second. So he cuts, grabs it, and shoots it. And it's just very hard to defend a player like that who moves out the ball the way Heat Warren does. Like, he's going to make your own plays for him. You don't have to do anything. He, he, just, he gets him the floor, he's going to score points. He also fits very well with the more in vogue stretch four because if you're getting that spacing from that position, especially if you have a guy at the four who wants to play in the corner – that leaves more space in the interior for a guy like Warren to operate. You wouldn't want him on a team like the Grizzlies, who already have two guys. But if you, let's say, on a team like New Orleans that can play Ryan Anderson at the four and that Anthony Davis can be used all over the floor as well, I think he could be a really fascinating fit for a team like that if you used him right. Yeah, I think like Warren is a guy who gets you points without having plays run for him. And there are just not, at 6'9", there are just not many guys you can say that about. Like he just, he, I think, to me, wherever he goes, he'll find a way to get points. And that's pretty valuable, especially for a guy his size. Are there any other players or subjects that you want to share with listeners? I guess one guy we talked about earlier is Spencer Dinwiddie. I, I love his game. Obviously, he has come up with torn ACL. But he's a guy I think can be a really good NBA player. Just, just a combination of size, shooting ability, and kind of overall feel for the game. That's a guy I think could be one of the skills of this draft guy who's going to fall because of his injury. Before he was injured, he was one of the best players in the country. 
He was. And what makes Dinwiddie interesting is actually part of the reason I love Dante Exum, which is that I feel like he could be a primary ball handler or a secondary ball handler. And I think that we're learning from teams like the Spurs that you want that. You want to have two guys that can initiate and that can, can run things because it makes it harder for defenses. And what I like about Dinwiddie is that he has succeeded as an off-the-ball player. I, I, he didn't do it a ton in Colorado, but he's a really nice shooter. I think he's a good catch-and-shoot guy as well. But if you want him to run the show, whether that be with starters or with backups, he can do that. And he's probably more of a two defensively. But having a guy who's a two that can be a primary or a secondary ball handler is a luxury. It's not a, it's not a burden. Yeah, for sure. It's like he can do a lot of different things. He's not maybe elite in one category, but he's pretty good at all, all across the board. So you can put him with almost any guard, and he'll be pretty successful. Like, to me, as a Mavs guy, I look at Dinwiddie as a perfect guy to Monta Ellis. Because Ellis is a guy who's a one, who's a two and a one's body. So you want to find a guy, you want to find a bigger guard who can defend and shoot next to him. And there aren't many guys with that kind of overall skill set that would make a player like Monta Ellis better. Like he's a guy I want the Mavs get 34 if he's there. Yeah, and the other thing that I like about Dinwiddie, we've talked about his versatility, is that that allows him to be what I call a bridge player. And the idea of that is that you can think about bench rotations in two different ways. One is more the the line shift, like what Mark Jackson did a lot with the Warriors, which is, you know, you take everybody off or you take everybody on. The other way is more of a rotation system where, you know, you swap one guy and then you put another guy in. And what's nice about a guy like Dinwiddie is that you could, let's say you, let's say you pull the other guy in, so then he's playing with Monte because Monte plays an insane amount of minutes. Then when you're ready to pull Monte, you can put in somebody else and Dinwiddie will still work. So a coach can be more creative with that, especially if he doesn't have a fourth guard that he likes. Yeah, I like that kind of the bridge. Because, like, I think the whole platoon model of bench is going out of style. You look at the Pacers, and one of the reasons they've struggled a lot with their bench the last few years is they have such rigid roles for their starters. that Everyone's in, everyone's out. And so they have a hard time getting missed with other best players. So they bring a whole new second unit. And they're going against guys who are like two or three starters and then some bench guys too. And it's just easier for the – it's easier when you have bridge guys like that to get other players play better, whereas they're having to create the whole new role for a team with 10 players. Yeah, I think we're in agreement on that. Well, thank you so much for taking the time. I'm looking forward to the draft on Thursday. Yeah, man, I'm looking forward to being over. No more kind of endless talking. Let's get these picks done. Yeah, and then, then we get a whole new brand of endless talking when we get to free agents. <laughs> Well, it's all in the game, I suppose. Have a good one, man. Thanks again to Jonathan Charks for coming on. You can read him at Real GM, and you can also follow him on Twitter at Jonathan Charks. That's J-O-N-A-T-H-A-N-T-J-A-R-K-S. Next up is Real GM's Andrew Perna. He called me less than half an hour after he walked out of the room for the NBA Draft Media Day. And the way that works, for those of you who are unfamiliar, is that they do. They split the green room people, which I think was 20 this year, into two different groups, and they have everybody available at the same time, usually for about a half an hour. So you can go over and talk to whoever you want or sit and hear the conversations. And so you have to make choices about who you want to hear, who you want to talk to, and everything. And it's one of the more strange experiences in it, especially because for a lot of the younger guys, it's their first experience with anything like that. The only other parallel to it is the NBA All-Star Game works the same way except that's split by conference because they have that to split so we talk about that we talk about media day and some of his predictions for t- the draft on thursday it's going to be exciting and it was a lot of fun to have him on andrew and i actually covered the draft together in 2012 so go and do a little bit with that and the guys that impressed him there were a couple of insight 
pieces into that that I thought were particularly notable, and we'll, we'll see where it all turns out, but it was so much fun having him on. Thanks so much for coming on. Hey, no problem, Danny. So you just got out of the media scrum for the draft, which is one of the more interesting traditions with it. We'll start with your general takeaways from that. Um, it was definitely uh, a highly populated uh, event. Um, this is really my eighth one that I have covered, and by far this is the one that had the most members of the media covering it. Um, obviously, I missed the LeBron year, but, I mean, so many crowds of people. I would say probably about 50 more members of the media than what last year, uh, and obviously that's because of you know, Andrew Wiggins and Jabari Parker. Uh, the crowds around them were uh, enormous. Generally, when I uh, when I covered the media availability the day before the draft, I like to look at the social aspects of kind of how personality-wise the players are presenting themselves because at this point they're not going to let anything out. But it's definitely something that it's one of my favorite events to cover. It was one of the things when I covered the draft with you two years ago that I think really was interesting to see how players adapted to such a such an unusual circumstance because there are a lot of people around, but they're also going to a bunch of people. So you're answering the same question a bunch of different times, and you could see how that reacted because players are going to deal with the media a lot, and you know you can you can draw on that in terms of how they're going to interact with coaches and other players and things like that. Absolutely, I mean they get asked. I, I would guess the same question three or four or five times, um, especially the more basic questions, you know, like who you worked out for, what you felt you did in the workout, how you felt you did, who you matched up with. Um, and then you get the um, token strange questions like, what will it be like to see yourself in 2K15 and what are you going to wear and stuff like that. So there's, there's definitely a wide range of things that these guys have to answer at this event. I think more so than probably any other event um, that they go to or that they're, that they're forced to talk to the media at because you have, you know, those cupcake questions for the fun little profiles that you can read for these guys. And then there's, you know, the more in-depth targeting questions um, about specific parts of their game, you know, how they feel they may fit in with ter- certain teams as, as far as teams go. And um, it's very interesting to see what com- questions they're comfortable with, how they handle answering that same question over and over again. Uh, and in general, just how they deal with the attention, because for some of these guys, this is probably the most attention they've seen, whether they came from a smaller school or, you know, they're, or at a school where, you know, they're comfortable with the contingent of media that, you know, has kind of surrounded them for their career. And now you have all these new faces and everybody's looking to get a piece of them. So it's really it's a fun thing to see. And it's also interesting to see that a couple of years down the line when these guys are established NBA players and, and more men than they are now and how they act. Who stood out to you in either a positive or theoretically a negative of this group? Um, you know, I, I, I'm being 100% honest when I say I don't really think there's anybody that stood out negatively. I didn't get a chance um, to sit down and talk with everybody or a chance to even listen in to everybody. There's close to 20 prospects. That's a large class this year that they invited. So I, I really wasn't negatively affected by anybody. If it, you know, Looking back historically, I mean, you expect to see – some guys that are a little immature, some guys that maybe don't know how to put into words what they're feeling or what they're thinking, you know, within seconds, within the seconds that they need to um, at this type of event. I remember the only player that's really hung with me for years in looking, not down on, but just wondering, you know, how mentally mature is he, is Michael Beasley, and we know how that turned out. But positively, I mean, I think everybody represents themselves well. I think in terms of comfort, I think Doug McDermott and Shabazz 
Napier were probably the two most comfortable players with all the attention. You know, obviously Wiggins and Parker are guys that are used to being interviewed and, and used to the attention. I think, uh, not that they weren't comfortable, but I just think they were a little guarded because people were trying to dig a little closer as far as if they got promises from teams and stuff like that. Uh, but if I, if I were to name the two most, you know, cool, calm, and collected guys, I, I'd definitely say McDermott and Napier. And that certainly makes sense because those are both guys who have dealt with a different kind of attention, closer to what this is for a very large portion of their, you know, if you want to call it adult life. I mean, it definitely, absolutely. And, you know, Napier's kind of, I'm sure he saw a lot of familiar faces uh, from New York and Connecticut media that covered him at UConn. So he was just kind of sitting back and enjoying the ride. He even remarked, that, you know, it's just something that he's kind of soaking in, which is something that you hear every prospect say, but you don't always see it manifest in, in their mannerisms and how they look. But he was just extremely relaxed and talked about how being so close with his mother and, and growing up, it was very important for him to graduate. And uh, walking across the stage to receive his diploma at UConn, he said, was a bigger night than winning the title this past April or even than tomorrow will be when um, his name was ultimately called and he meets Adam Silver on stage. So, uh, you know, you can definitely see, like you said, you know, the guys that have, have dealt with it, and, you know, McDermott being, you know, the player that he is and then spending more time in college than a lot of these guys, he, he's a little more seasoned as well. You also talked to one of the raw guys, not necessarily from a media perspective, but from a basketball perspective in Zach Levine. I was wondering what you took away from that. Uh, you know, I talked to I, I talked to him and I said, you know, what do you, what is your take on how teams evaluate you or, or teams see you? And he said, you know, he's gotten this reputation as, you know, just an athletic freak and, you know, YouTube mixtapes, mixtapes, excuse me, of his dunks and stuff like that, but. He didn't feel that he was really recognized for that athleticism until about the last year. He said, you know, I put up 25, 35 points a game in high school, and, you know, people thought I could score. They didn't really look at me as this explosive athlete. They knew I could dunk. But what I take away from that is I think at the high school level, he probably was able to score more easily in a variety of different ways, maybe at lesser competition. And then when he got to the next stage, some of the holes that he has were probably exposed a little bit. And, he was forced to rely on the athleticism a little more than he probably liked, and he'll probably adjust to that in the NBA as well. But you know, he, he also said that he tried in his workouts to show teams that, you know, he has more than just the athleticism, that, you know, he has worked on his offensive game and that he's a hardworking player and um, he listens to instruction and things like that. I thought that was interesting, and it's definitely, you know, something you'd like to see from him because, you know, a player that at this time, at this moment, known for his athleticism, you know, you need – more than that, in most cases in the NBA, because not everybody's as talented as, you know, the LeBrons and Kevin Durant. And did you hear him mention at all? I've heard him say it in other interviews that he still sees himself as a as a point guard. I did not personally. Um, I spent maybe four or five minutes with him, and uh, that wasn't touched on by me or anybody else. But I did notice uh, kind of, I don't know if you'd call it a trend, but it seemed that most players in this draft class at one point in time, uh, him um, excluded, simply because I may not have been there for that portion, was talking about working on their ball handling skills. And I'm not, you know, I'm not just talking about the Marcus Smarts and the Napiers, you know, and the Paytons, the guys that you'd expect to talk about the ball handling skills, the smaller guys, the guards. But I spent a, a, a lot of time with some of the bigger guys, and they talked about, you know, they know NBA teams want a guy who, you know, doesn't have stone hands, a guy that can handle the ball, a big man that can pass out of the post and stuff like that. So, uh, I think you're seeing a trend towards that in the league these days. And, you know, we saw that from, you know, big men that can pass and how 
successful they were this past season in the NBA. Yeah, I, there was a quote that's been circulating a little bit about from Novonley that's been saying that he, the, I think it was that he's con, he considers himself at least partially a small forward, which is really interesting, especially as somebody who followed him as a prospect when he was a small forward. Whether whether you want to attribute that to a guy like Kevin Garnett or you want to go more current generation to a guy like Durant, there definitely is an interest in that. And I think that the other part of that is it might be that they know NBA teams value that. And so to, to maybe maybe somebody will pick up that interview and be like, oh, that's nice that they did that, and maybe that helps their draft stock. Absolutely, 100%. You know, I spent a lot of time with him, and he talked about the fact that he sees himself going into the NBA at least immediately in his first couple of seasons as sort of a stretch four because he's got that side, but he doesn't necessarily have the body to, to bang with, you know, a traditional center or even a traditional power forward. But – he thinks that his three-point shot was it was improved over the season at Indiana, and he thinks that since it's something that he's been working on, he said post uh, you know the Hoosier season, that's going to be a strength for him. He wants to be. He mentioned Chris Bosh a handful of times as the kind of guy that can you know grab a rebound, um, you know leap over guys who have athleticism, and then when need be step out and hit a jumper, uh, you know to draw out defenses or whatever work with whatever team's team that you know where he ends up and I mean that's definitely I guess a, a suitable uh, comparison if you're looking at the high end for him the very high end but if he models himself in that type of role you know he's trying to carve out a path to success for himself in the NBA and I think not that not that either of us are that old we're the same age almost 30 but I feel like over the past couple of years prospects are getting a little more cognizant of finding that 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 slot that will get them longevity in the NBA and finding out and figuring out what teams want and need um, as opposed to just kind of relying on the body work that they have in the past. They're, you know, evolving and expanding after their college careers, even in the couple months leading up to the draft. And I think that shows a sign of maturity. I think it's obviously something that I'm sure agents and hangers on are, are pushing players towards, but uh, I think ultimately that helps teams evaluate and hopefully in the long run it, it turns out to uh, a better turnover in terms of players hitting on where they're drafted and less bust. I don't know. Yeah, it, it definitely could. I think that I think players are more, yeah more aware of what will have them stick in the league. And I'm amazed that we made it this far without talking much about Marcus Smart because he in some ways has the most to prove in terms of a media thing because of the well-documented issues that he had at Oklahoma State. Did any of that come up when you were around him? Not when I was around him. I uh, I was funny. I was actually texting with an executive, that, uh, the one of the few executives I'm friendly with, and um, before on my way into the city, and he was kind of hearing that maybe Smart was dropping, but he wasn't sure if it was kind of teams just overplaying those issues to try to get him to fall a little bit. And from what it seems like, it's not he's not going to fall any farther than eight to ten, and that seems to be consistent at this point. He, when I was uh, sitting and talking with him, he talked kind of about going up against other guys what and reasons why he didn't work out for Utah. Uh, he claimed that it was his agent's decision for him not to work out with the Jazz, and he even went as far as to say that he would be fine playing alongside Trey Burke. I mean, that's what he says now, and it would be interesting to see uh, what would happen if Utah pulled the trigger without having worked him out. But you could see, you know, not, no bad characteristics from him, but you could definitely see he seems a little bit more, I don't know exactly, the right word for it. He seems a little bit more cognizant of the games that maybe the games that are played by teams and even the media this time of year. And he seems aware of that and he seems prepared to hear questions about why he didn't work out in Utah. 
um, and probably just the things that have surrounded him from his time in college probably prepared him for that. But other than that, he was, you know, he was composed, mature, and, and ready to go. A factor in that might be that Marcus is one of the few American players in recent history to go through at least part of the draft process twice because he was expected to be in the draft for such a long time and then pulled out. So he got to see, I think, a little bit more of it. And then I'm guessing he probably had at least a passing interest in it as somebody who turned it down just to kind of see how things turned out. And that very well might have informed his thought process on this whole thing. Absolutely. You know, that's a great point. That was mentioned briefly when I was sitting down with him. And, you know, he was able to gauge things a little bit and kind of, I mean, while he didn't make it, obviously, totally through the process, uh, you know, this is sort of in many ways the second go around. He was very, very comfortable. I'll say that. And he seems to take things in stride. And I'm probably knowing some tougher questions were coming his way than some of the other prospects. But um, you mentioned, you know, him being a, an American player. And there was a night, there was a little bit of flavor from all over. Uh, in this draft class, and I think that added to the uh, the media attention. I didn't sit down with any of the international prospects, but we had, you know, two Canadians and 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 Dante, the Australian. So um, I think it's good for the NBA to have coverage from all over. You see outlets from coming from Australia and and all in Canada and all over, and there's a lot of talk about Canadian basketball going forward. And you know, ultimately, that's growth is good for the game. Yeah, and I definitely think that. And obviously we can draw the international player lines differently. I mean, even a guy like Dante Exum, who didn't grow up in the United States, he's the son of a of a basketball player. His dad, yeah, yeah. Played, with Michael, his dad played with Michael Jordan. Yeah. So it's, it's definitely interesting to see how what used to be a really big line of division, you know, Americans versus non-Americans, that that line is blurring really hard right now. And I, I think that that, from a media perspective and from a lot of different perspectives, could be a, a really unique aspect of the NBA because you don't really see that in the other professional sports, at least the North American professional sports. Oh, absolutely. And and you're right. You know, you have these players that, you know, are considered, you know, by, league, by the league and when people make crazy statistics about the draft prospects that are considered international and, you know, they probably played uh, at least a year or so at a prep school uh, somewhere in the United States. And, you, know, you talk about you know Wiggins and you know, he's obviously spent time here and you know it's it's different even than it was a couple of years ago where you know you'd have an international prospect come in and they were so unfamiliar with just the entire process itself just the circus that it kind of is when you come to something like the media availability the day before the draft and you know now everybody's pretty much if not totally comfortable with the situation at least they know what to expect they know the stock standard answers I, I remember. Jonas Valanciunas uh, was probably the last quote-unquote international prospect that came through that kind of seemed like he was overly blunt and maybe didn't quite understand the games that are played um, in that situation. And you see guys much more guarded now. I mean, everybody's going to get asked about, you know, who who they felt they worked out with best and uh, did they receive any promises or talks from or, or, or considerations from any team. And everybody pretty much at this point, American or international, knows you know, to give a stock answer and not let anything go, um, whether or not they've received, you know, any indication that a team is really interested or not. And, um, I, I always laugh at, you know, when, when prospects are asked that question, you know, where do you think you'll go or do you have any indication? Because it's probably, there's probably a 1% chance that they're going to give you anything other than a completely bland answer. And I'm going to miss some of the bluntness. As somebody who covers Andrew Bogut, I think that it's a really fun component of 
team dynamics as well as media dynamics. I think that it's good to have those people, though obviously there are some people who are like that with teammates and not with the press, and that's totally fine, of course. But I I don't know. I, I always, I've always had fun with those type of guys. Yeah, I mean, they're obviously more engaging and more entertaining, and they obviously there's obviously a component to guys like that that they, I don't want to say they, you know, love the attention, but they know how to play the game, quote-unquote. And, um, you know, they'll give, you know, you a little something, and they, whether or not they admit it, expect, you know, that, you know, okay, you're going to like me a little bit better, and maybe you're going to be a little kinder. And that's not always the case, I guess, in this now and day and age with, you know, more bloggers and people covering from afar rather than, you know, in person. But guys like Bogut, I mean, a handful of guys around that I've covered that have been a little bit more open, guys like Hibbert when he comes to my Boston area and uh, Nate Robinson when he was in Boston and Glenn Davis, guys that are willing to give you a little something. It makes it a little bit more engaging. They let their personality out a little bit more. I think a lot of these guys are guarded nowadays, which you can't really blame them which is unique, I think, because people talk about how much more access we have to guys like this nowadays with Twitter and all that kind of stuff. But I think it also has the reverse effect where you see guys become more guarded and, and aware of what's going on around them. And then, it, you know, it's nice for the bogus and stuff like that to come out and have everybody around them and kind of, you know, soaking it in. There wasn't really any one prospect there today that kind of commanded the room 100%. And that's not a detriment to any of these guys. It's just a simple fact. I think it was, I think it was one of my first drafts. Watched uh, Team Noah, obviously, you know, known for his gregarious personality, was kind of holding court the day before the draft in New York City. Um, obviously, the place where he was comfortable and comfortable with the attention and just kind of, you know, almost putting on a show. And um, that those things tend to be rare nowadays. The guy that I think about in terms of really impressing me on a personal level on, on that Wednesday before the draft is Damian Lillard, be just because of the way the, his confidence, but also his I don't, I don't know what it is. Well, it was his emotional awareness, I guess, could be the right term for it. But was there anybody that struck you, even if you just saw it, that you're like, wow, that 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 guy looks like he knows what he's doing? Definitely, today. you know, and I touched on it before, but definitely Napier. I mean, he's. Whether it's just his personality, I mean, I haven't spent uh, any extended time with him, whether that's just his personality, and it may be, um, and it, it kind of seems like it may be, or he's just totally at ease and gets it and is comfortable with what happens. He talks freely and without, you know, any sort of pregnant pauses about not really caring where he went, about having uh, spoken to Kimball Walker, uh, you know, who went ninth a couple of years ago, and I, I think there was some talk that he could have gone a little bit higher and he kind of waited a little bit. And he said, you know, if that happens to me, it happens to me. You know, he's going to be um, and he's going to be an NBA player. He knows that. Um, he's going to get a chance, you know, to, you know, further his basketball career. And, and he's comfortable with wherever that happens. You know, everybody says that to a degree, but not everybody says it as well, as freely, and as convincingly as Napier did. And, I, and, and, and to, to that point, I think there were some guys that are kind of on the opposite end of that spectrum. And, um are still kind of figuring things out a little bit. I think Vonley is one of those guys. He, he was very honest, but not 100% uh, comfortable with all the attention, I think. I think he's still growing into himself, his body, and, his, and, and mentally. But he, but to talking about guys who are candid, he did have some honest responses about, you know, somebody asked him, what's your biggest weakness? And he kind of he sat there and he thought for a minute and uh he said, you know, at this point, I think everything's a little bit of a weakness because you have to work on all aspects of the game and you can't be, 
you know, complacent in any one area, whether he thinks rebounding or whatever is his strength at this point. And while he seemed, you know, his age physically and in terms of maybe his self-confidence, I thought that was a really great answer um, for a kid to give um, before they step onto the stage because you can't fall asleep. And, you know, you want a guy who's going to be working on all aspects and, and, and not considering anything a strength at this point because you're looking to get to your ceiling, not just stay where you are right now. That's a good point. It's encouraging to hear. We'll look a little bit more towards tomorrow. You're going to be in the building. Is there anything that you're expecting to see when we come to the draft, or is it basically just a gigantic pool of insane right now? It's pretty much going to be that. I mean, around this time of year, you hear all sorts of crazy rumors. And then I've tossed around the idea in the past, but there's just not enough time or, or maybe it's just lack of effort of just writing down all the crazy rumors that you hear a few weeks leading up and especially today and tomorrow morning and then looking back in a few years and thinking oh wow did, did we know how close the Cavs you know we joke about how close the Cavs were to you know actually trading that pick was that even a possibility and you know what was Utah offering and did you know the Bucks make some promise to Parker and all this stuff and I think a few years down the line it'd be funny to kind of look back and see um, how either prophetic some of those things were or how silly they were you know, it would be interesting to see what happens tomorrow. I think a draft like this, it's so deep with so many guys that, you know, seemingly can make a big impact. It could be a little bit more fun than some of the drafts in the past where we've kind of known uh, where a lot of guys are going to slot. And, um, you know, overall, uh, today is the day um, that you put in a little bit more work researching and getting interviews and talking to guys. And tomorrow it's, it's a whole new step for these guys, you know, Next time you talk to these guys, they're going to be NBA players. And they're going to know where they're playing. So it's it's fun too to see where they make that transition over the 36 hour period, um, you know, to amateur to professional. And it's New York City, so it's always crazy. Yeah, and the other thing that you get a better sense of when you watch the draft in person, and part of the reason why, in particular, the NBA draft is my. I say the when I wake up on the morning of the NBA draft, it's the most excited I am for any day of the year. And the reason for that to me is that. It's a really important thing for those players. You know, it is a huge moment in their lives. It, it means for a lot of them that they're going to be financially secure, at least if they don't screw it up. And that's a huge thing. It's it's the biggest step in their professional in their professional lives, at least as athletes. And you get a real sense of that. You get a sense of it on the Wednesday, but the Thursday, I feel like that kicks in not only for media members but for the players themselves. Oh, absolutely. And I mean, I don't think enough is said about. In, in terms of basketball, I, I know it's sometimes mentioned in baseball and football that if a guy is drafted to the wrong team or the wrong team takes a guy, unfortunately, that can, you know, handicap the rest of his basketball career. I mean, you talk a lot, you, you hear a lot about teams that don't develop baseball players well, you know, because obviously the developmental process lasts much longer and, it, and it's not under the fine-tooth comb that it, would, it is at the other levels. You talk about football where a player is drafted, it's kind of a, a scheme where they're set up a little bit more for success and more so than the NBA, they're allowed maybe a year or two. In the NBA, these guys, for the most part, these lottery picks are going to come in and they're going to play rotation minutes at the very least. And if they're drafted into the wrong situation, whether they have the wrong teammates, whether they're in the wrong city, whether they have the wrong coach, you know, that can have a huge effect on their career. And that's no fault of the player. And in most cases, it's no fault of the head coach or the teammates either. It's just circumstance. And, you know, so there definitely will be some player here that, you know, ends up at Team X, and if he was at Team Y, his career would have played out a little differently. So it's really interesting to see because, you know, reputations are earned pretty quickly nowadays. 
and um, there's not going to be much time to make a first impression on NBA fans. And whether you end up on the wrong team um, and things don't go well, and then you end up, you know, onto your second team, but an opinion has already been formed of you. So um, it is a big, it's a much bigger night for guys than I think some realize, especially with teams allowed to kind of, with CBA structured for teams to keep their, their high draft picks a little longer than maybe a decade or two ago. So it's interesting, and, I, you know, I'm excited. Uh, it's the biggest night of the year for most NBA fans, bloggers, media, whatever. So it's kind of nice to just charge yourself up, get ready for the next day, and then Friday will be a day of uh, decompression. Well, have, have a lot of fun with it. it I'm sure it'll be a, a really an interesting experience, and I think the uncertainty this year will be very interesting in the room, and I think it'll play really well on TV as well. I agree, Danny. Thank you very much for having me on. Thanks again to Andrew Perna for taking the time to come on. You can follow him on Twitter at Andrew, A-N-D-R-E-W, underscore Perna, P-E-R-N-A. And you can also read him on Real GM, just like you can read Jonathan Charks. And it was so happy to have both of them on. This is going to be a very unusual draft in the sense that the top end, and some people even put this with the very top guys, is very balanced. I wrote a piece on this for Real GM a couple days ago, but that... The line between number one and even number nine in my case is really not that large and that means that some teams are going to be happy to end up with anybody but that also means that there will be intense variability in terms of where certain people end up so you could see trades if there's somebody who loves Aaron Gordon and they think he might go at seven or at nine maybe you see somebody jump in and those factors make it unpredictable. The other thing that makes it very hard to really calibrate is the increased importance now for agency with LeBron James opting out and opting out before the draft because that affects how teams view their own cap space, which of course can be affected by draft picks because for some teams that is their greatest asset to unload a contract. So I think we will see at least one move in the lottery, likely in the top 10, that it is a move eyeing one of the major free agents, LeBron, Carmelo, whoever. I do not know. I do not have sources on what that will be. It's just my instinct with everything else. But even if the draft is more boring in that way than it was last year or other years, it's still such a monumentally important thing, not only for the league itself, but for the players involved. And it is such a monumental step in these people's lives and that's part of the reason why I've always been a draft Nick. I'm an NBA draft Nick, I'm an NFL draft Nick and I would be baseball if I could follow college baseball more because it's a real step for these guys and because they're human beings a lot of them come from upbringings well this will this will change their families lives for generations and as much as we like to talk about players like the robots and we like to think of it as a video game and you try to run trades through it trade through a trade checker like real gm's excellent trade checker at its most basic sports in the draft comes down to people and this draft in particular to me stands out because you have a lot of guys that are high quality athletes a lot of guys who do different things and it may end up being things like motor things like how long a guy stays in the gym how collaborative they are with other teams teammates that makes the difference and I think we just saw a finals where a group of really talented individuals were put together by an incredible front office and I'm not sure it'll have huge ripple effects I haven't written that piece yet I'm not sure that it will but there are definitely lessons to be learned there and 
I, for one, am just absolutely captivated to see what Thursday brings. I hope you'll enjoy it, and I will. Real GM Radio and myself will definitely provide you with a lot of insight into that. I hope to have my personal draft piece out within the first half hour after the draft is done, though obviously that depends on other factors. So thank you so much for listening. I appreciate it. You can hit me up on Twitter at DannyLaRue, that's D-A-N-N-Y-L-E-R-O-U-X, or you can also send me an email at daniel.laru at realgm.com. I read everything you send. I try to respond to everything that I can, and it makes the show better. I really do appreciate it. I do read it, and thank you so much for listening. It has feels, even though it hasn't been a year, it feels like this is the end of one year and the start of another, so thank you so much for coming along for the ride. Hope you stay with us. I'll be here as long as I can, and thanks, take care, and make it a great day. you don't go to geico.com car insurance can be hard like early 90s heavy metal hard i'm yelling and screaming and i'm loud Roar! geico makes it easy you can review and update your policy or report a claim on geico.com or the geico mobile app because shouldn't we all have a little less stress in our lives 